Hey everyone, welcome back to Vetfolio Voice. In this episode, sponsored by the American Board of Veterinary Practitioners, or ABVP, Dr. Mark Epstein and I explore board certification for the general practitioner as a way to take your career to the next level. Okay, hear me out. I love the idea of developing further expertise in my career in the form of board certification, but I also really love being a general practitioner, and to be honest, with where I am in life, pursuing a traditional residency is just not a realistic option for me at the moment. However, there is good news. ABVP is a recognized veterinary specialty organization for me and anyone out there who can relate. To those of us who want to excel without narrowing our focus or who need or want an alternative route to board certification, ABVP is there for us. Now, as you'll learn, becoming board certified through ABVP is no small feat. It requires significant time and dedication, but can come with huge payoffs in the areas of opportunities and expertise. First, a little bit about my speaker. Dr. Epstein received his DVM from the University of Georgia and is the Senior Partner and Medical Director of Total Bond Veterinary Hospitals and Carolina's Animal Pain Management, a small group of AHA accredited practices in the Charlotte and Gastonia, North Carolina area that received the Small Business of the Year Award from the Gaston Regional Chamber of Commerce in 2015. He's a diplomate of the American Board of Veterinary Practitioners in Canine and Feline and is past president of ABVP. He's certified by the Academy of Integrative Pain Management, is recognized as a certified veterinary pain practitioner by the International Veterinary Academy of Pain Management, and is past president of IVAPM. He's currently president of the IVAPM Research and Scholarship Foundation. Dr. Epstein chaired the AHA Senior Care Guidelines Task Force and co-chaired the 2015 AHA AAFP Pain Management Guidelines Task Force. He's published in journals and textbooks and is a national and international lecturer on the recognition, prevention, and treatment of pain in the veterinary clinical setting. In his local community, Dr. Epstein is very active, having served in leadership positions in many organizations, including the United Arts Council, Gaston Dance Theater, City of Gastonia Planning Commission, Temple Emanuel, Gaston Interfaith Trialogue, and as a Better Angels co-organizer. He received the Gaston Regional Chambers Inspiration Award in 2018 and the Gaston Together's MLK Unity Award in 2020. Let's go ahead and get into our talk. Well, today I am joined by Dr. Mark Epstein. We're going to talk a little bit more about the ABVP board certification process, something that I personally have a lot of questions about. So Dr. Epstein, thank you so much for being here with me today. Oh, Dr. Cassie, it's an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank. I, I feel like I've kind of got my own personal question and answer session about all things ABVP here. So I'm, I'm really excited about it. Oh, me too. Well, let's start by talking about ABVP itself, the American Board of Veterinary Practitioners, and just how it came to be. I understand that what it is today has kind of evolved over the years. Yeah, sure has. So uh, thank you again for uh, having me, and thank you for this important question kind of getting us started. The American Board of Veterinary Practitioners is an RVSO. It's a recognized veterinary specialty organization within the ABVS, right? The American Board of Veterinary Specialties. So there are many RVSOs that you're familiar with, internal medicine, surgery, ophthalmology, pathology, you can just go down the list. 
and ABVP is at the same level of all of those. So it's a recognized veterinary specialty organization. And within it are 11 RVSs, recognized veterinary specialties. So you might imagine like ACVIM is an RVSO, and then they have small animal and large animal as two separate RVSs. So ABVP has 11 of them. It was founded in 1978. It had three RVSs or three species categories at the time. They were companion animal, they were, it was food animal, and then it was equine. And the purpose of it, as it was kind of consecrated all those years ago, was a little different than what was imagined for most of the colleges that we have, the other RVSOs. And it was not necessarily to, you know, kind of get you a referral base or anything like that. It was really just to work hard, kind of elevate your game, you know, get above a certain bar within the profession as a commitment to continued learning and extra learning. And then simply once you, you know, passed all the credentials and the exam that you'd be recognized for having done that among your peers. That was really the goal of it. It was for self-improvement and then to be recognized for that among your peers. And that was really the goal. And it remained that way for a long, long time. It has changed over the years. And, you know, we can talk about that perhaps a little bit, but that's how it started. It started with just three and now we've gone up to 11 of them. Correct. And, And so that companion animal I know has expanded quite a bit. Right. So the companion animal actually kind of split eventually because the cat people, the feline community, as the body of literature began to expand, and it was obviously clearly, you know, cats and dogs are you know clearly two quite different species. And as the information about cats and the differences between cats and dogs began to accrue, then it split basically between what we now call canine feline and then strictly the feline specialty. And then food animal split because at the time it was kind of a bucket specialty. You know, I quite clearly, you know, dairy is much different than beef, which is much different than goat. And so now there are three or four specialties that emanated from that. There's dairy, beef, what is still called food animal, which is like small production animals. That's like goat and sheep and then swine health management. So there are four that kind of came out of the food animal category. And then eventually, you know, avian, reptile, amphibian, and small mammal, exotic, and, you know, several others. The new one that is not specifically, it's like the first and the only non-species specialty is shelter medicine. So they originally had wanted to become their own RVSO, the ABVS directed them to ABVP instead. And so now they are one of ABVP's RVSs, one of the specialty categories within ABVP. I love it. It's very reflective of the veterinary industry as a whole and kind of what we do within the industry. Yeah, it sure is. It sure is. In fact, of course, with shelter medicine, they deal with many species of animals. You know, it can be equine, it can be horses, it can be dogs, it can be cats, it can be straight pigs, uh, you know, whatever comes into a shelter is going straight to- Straight bearded uh, dragons. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And sometimes, <laughs> sometimes. Oh, I love it. I love it. So we talked about how ABVP is on the same level as these other RVSOs, Correct. but it also has some pretty key differences. Can you talk about why ABVP is different from other specialty organizations? 
Right. So almost all those other RVSOs are going to require a formal residency. That is their standard track, right? So a supervised residency for, you know, two or three years in order to be able to sit for your boards. And then now many of them do have what are called alternative tracks where you can be in practice and then it takes quite a bit of time. You have to do sabbaticals, but there are ways to get board certified in many of them but it's a bit of a slog. And essentially ABVP flipped that narrative on its head, whereas the main path forward is a non-residency path. So you do have to be in practice for you know five years before you can get it. So it's not gonna be a two or three year process, but you can do it while you're in practice, while you're working. And there are some residencies out there too. So those are almost the alternative tracks for ABVP. And the only reason the B is there instead of a, a college, I mean, technically speaking, is because the ACVP was already taken by pathologists. So the American College of Veterinary Pathology already had that designation. And there's always a little talk about changing the nomenclature a little bit to be a little bit more aligned with the other RVSOs, but currently it's, the, it's a board and it's a, generally speaking, a non-residency track and you can do it while you're in practice. You just have to do it over the course of several years and be out by your fifth year is when you would sit for your exam which opens up a lot of possibilities for people who do want to stay in practice and maybe aren't in a position or don't want to do a formal residency to still develop a board certification and that that specialization and hold themselves to that high level that ABVP offers. Correct. And it's, uh, it's simply instead of in a discipline oriented, right? So instead of in you know, ophthalmology and pathology, radiology, instead of in a discipline, it's in a species. Sure. And then of course there's sheltered medicine as well. So you are still, I, I, I don't want to overstate it, but you are a specialist within that species category. And that allows you to be another kind of way to frame it unofficially is that you're, you're a specialist primary care, right? You're a specialist yeah. in, in first opinion care within that species category. Well, Mark, that was a great overview of the the key similarities and the key differences between ABVP and some of the the other organizations and just kind of summing up what it is as a whole. Can we talk about kind of your history in clinical practice? What made you decide to become an ABVP diplomate? So Cassie, I, I, to be honest with you, I took a job with an early diplomate, you know, he was one of the early diplomates and I'll just be transparent. I didn't really understand it, you know, and, and not to date me, but I will in 1985, I just didn't know. I just knew it meant that he had to be good, but I didn't know much about the organization. But as soon as I started to work for him, he was a great mentor. And I saw the, the merit of doing that kind of self-improvement. And so, you know, within five or six years, I had gone on myself to become board certified. So I credit, you know, my, my first boss, who was an early diplomate, and that's what kind of prompted me to do it. But as I said, things have kind of changed over the years. I think there may be different motivations for people than to be just lucky enough to have somebody to encourage you to do it. Right. But that's the arc of my story. But the mentorship being hugely important, and we're going to circle back around to that a little bit later. But I know one thing that has always intimidated me when it came to pursuing ABVP board certification, and this is something that I I have a big interest in. It's definitely on my list of professional goals. These case studies have always intimidated me. I mean, I kind of put specialists up on a little bit of a pedestal sometimes, and I wonder, am I seeing cases that are are worthy of these ABVP case reports? So can we talk a little bit more about the case reports? And then also, I understand there's some alternatives to the case reports now as well. 
Yeah, hundred percent. So uh, it's a great question, Cassie. And the way to think about the case reports or these other credentialing tools are designed insofar as possible to basically replace that supervised residency, right? So this is how the credentials committee begins to grasp, you know, your quality of practice and how well you think through a case and how analytical are you? And frankly, how well do you communicate that? So for many years, it was in fact, two case reports, and we'll talk about choosing the cases in just a second. But as you mentioned, there are other paths. So you can do two case reports. You can do a case report plus a peer-reviewed publication. You can do a case report plus five case summaries. So they're a little more abbreviated, but there's five of them, or you can do 10 case summaries. So it has evolved over the years. It's not strictly the two case reports. And to your question about like, if you're going to do a case report, I can tell you that the frequency with which people are passing both case reports when they submit them the first time is good, but it's not great. And I can tell you too, that some of the things that trip people up most commonly, because it is intimidating, there's no question about it. And particularly if you're not, you know, don't fancy yourself like a writer or a a researcher or something like that. You don't have to really be, you simply have to be able to convey how you work through a case really top to bottom. And it's not even the AVMA case report format. It is something where you explain your decision-making throughout. So the things that typically will trip people up include picking cases that are way too elementary, picking cases that are way too complex that go on for two years or something like that. Cause then you have to explain every CBC and, you know, it's, it's, it gets, it gets unwieldy is the best way to put it. When people try to add to the literature, right? So they saw something they feel like is really rare, or maybe it was in fact, very rare. That's fantastic, but it doesn't really suit us, the ABVP very well, because of course there's not gonna be a lot written about it, right? So how, how can you do a great case report if there's not a lot of information out there for you to reference, for example? Then you get into just mechanics of the writing. You know, I can tell you that the case reports, when they're graded in a kind of a semi-objective manner, but it's been developed and refined over many, many years using all kinds of psychometrics. So we feel like it's pretty much down to a air quote science to do it as well as possible. But I can tell you some of the things that will trip up and get the paper to fail is simply a quality, right? And if you try to rush these papers, right? If you're trying to get it in and start two months before deadline, I can just tell you, we're all busy people. And you can tell when these papers are rushed and they're just not very well done or somebody didn't hit spell check. I mean, you know, it can be really, really simple quality matters in there. So those are kind of the things that can trip people up or get the papers dinged and maybe not pass. Generally speaking, it can be overcome. There is an appeal process too. If you feel like there was something that you needed to convey that maybe the reviewers didn't know, it's all blinded to the applicant as well. So nobody knows who's reading whose paper. And at the end of the day, it can be a very thought provoking process for yourself, right? So you, you learn a bunch when you go back in and you really get granular on a case that you dealt with over a, a few weeks or months, for example, you simply just began to learn a lot. So it's a part of that self-improvement as well. Absolutely. How much time would you recommend someone budget to do a complete well-done case report? Let me put it this way. If you plan to do two and the deadline for application is January 15th, halfway through your fourth year. Okay. So you'll be able to sit for your exam by the end of that, basically just past your fifth year anniversary. You should basically budget probably about a year's time. You know, you're not going to work on it every day, right? You're not going to work on it maybe two or three days a week, but you need to have plenty of lead time, choose your case carefully, 
you can get mentored in that department. You can go to avvp.com and simply click on request a mentor. And while they are not speaking on behalf of ABVP necessarily, they have been through the process and can guide you on case selection and things like that. And then you've got, if you, if you dedicate, let's say eight, nine, 10 months, let's just give it that kind of time frame, your papers are going to be good. I, I can tell you that if you just take your time, be thorough, be careful and pick the right cases, you're probably going to do well and can't guarantee outcomes here either, just like in the exam room, but there's a good chance your paper will pass. Man, now the the wheels in my head are just spinning with all kinds of cases and possibilities and and things like that. So can we talk a little bit more about that case selection? Sure. And what kind of cases should we be looking for? I think that the cases that would be considered like, just to give you some examples of what not to do, maybe is a good place to start. So if you have a hyperthyroid cat, that's, you know, anybody graduating from vet school should be able to manage these, these cats. This is going to be the kind of case where some practitioners either will, will, may struggle with, or may they, they may refer, they honestly, right? So the, if you take the hyperthyroid cat, but it has chronic renal disease and it has hypertension and maybe it has HCM. So it's got these kind of comorbidities in there. That's a good case. It's a complicated case and you need to kind of really do well for, the, for this kitty, right? And so that would be a good example. Kind of a case that may not be good, like lymphoma cases, if you happen to do medical oncology and it's fine to try, right? But if that dog does really well and that's why you're proud of it and it lived a year and a half or almost two years, you know, here again, it's going to become a very, very, very dense, long, drawn out, complicated case. And it's easy for the reviewers to go back and say, yeah, what happened to that eosinophilia? Right. And so, you know, you know what I'm saying? So get, get the monocytes were 1500. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So if you don't address it, so it's not a problem that something didn't go well with the case, by the way, it's also not a problem if you didn't do every single diagnostic, right. Either because the owners declined it and you just have to mention that you offered it and it was declined or you referred for the ultrasound and it came back to you with a report. That's okay. You know, if you actually did that work, maybe better, but it's not a fatal flaw to not have performed, you know, every single item. And you can have collaborative work with other specialists in some of these cases. So you don't want to do something too elementary. You don't want to do something way too complicated. You don't need to add to the literature with something rare. And I hope that kind of gives you a good frame. I think it does. It makes me think of a patient that I'm managing currently. We've been managing her chronic kidney disease for, for quite a while. She, she's 19, sweet old kitty. Recently, we've known there's been an arthritis component, but she hasn't been very clinical for it, but she's becoming more clinical for it because she's 19 years old. Sure. So trying to manage these things concurrently is what, what immediately pops into my brain when we're talking about this. Does that sound kind of on the right track as an example of what you're, what you're referring to? It could be. So here's some, I'm here. I'm doing a little unofficial mentoring of you on a, on a case. <laughs> I'll case take selection. it as long as you're okay. With it. <laughs> so that is going to be a, that's going to be a challenging on the management side. Not too difficult on the diagnostic side though. Right. Sure. Right. So, and that, so there's maybe other cases where it took a little more work to get to what you were actually dealing with. Whereas degenerative okay. joint disease is, you know, it's almost a given in a cat that's over 12 even, but I can see how it's it, on the management side. Yes, for sure. On the diagnostic side, if the paper were thought to be weak, it might be on that, that side. Of okay. Things. 
Okay. I think that if that, thank you for that mm-hmm. answer. Cause I think that gives us kind of a really good example of where to look at these cases of something that is both impactful diagnostically and then management wise. Yes, correct. Perfect. Impact. You know what? That's a good phrase. Impactful. Impactful. That just impactful. came to me. <laughs> impactful, challenging, uh, correct. Correct. I like it. I like it. So a couple times you brought up your mentor when you decided to pursue board certification. And then you've also mentioned finding a mentor on the website. So let's talk a little bit more about that. How does one find a mentor? What should we be looking for in a mentor? And what kind of expectations do we have when working with a mentor, both us of them and then and then them of mentees? That's a great question. So, you know, my mentor was my boss, right? So it was the gentleman that hired me and encouraged me to to get board certified and kind of walk me through his experience. And that was my mentorship, right? It wasn't a formal one. Within ABVP, when you click on a mentor, they have asked those of us who have been board certified, would you like to be a mentor? So those who are assigned you as a mentor have simply been through the process, right? And we have no special insight. It's not that that these folks even have necessarily graded these papers, right? These case reports or have helped formulate exam items or anything. They might have, but they may not have. And they're really just helping you experientially. So I think to, to manage expectations, it goes something like this. They can guide you. They can do some of this very conversations that we've been having here, help you select a case based on their understanding of how they successfully became board certified, but it does not guarantee an outcome and they're not speaking on behalf of ABVP. So we don't want somebody to get a mentor and to say, yeah, but they said this case was perfect and then have the case you know, fail. And it may have failed for a variety of reasons. So that's a great question. And managing expectations, I think is good in there. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. To make sure that it's not a guarantee that you're going to pass or anything like that. Just, uh, just help along the way. Correct. And it's not just with the case reports, by the way, it's also in studying for the exam, you know, cause we all do it a little sure. differently, but they can share their, you know, how they did it and guide them to certain resources or whatever they might have done. Absolutely. And I love that you brought up the exam. Cause that segues perfectly into my next question of we want to get these case reports, case summaries accepted so that we can become eligible to take the board certification exam. So can you kind of walk us through the process of what it would look like from start to finish to go through the application process from the case report to passing the exam? Sure. Happy to. So the first thing to say is you go to abvp.com and you go to board certification and you look at, there is the handbook. There is the ABVP Diplomate Handbook. And this, it's a bit of a book, right? So it's developed over many years and refined, refined, refined. And that is the Bible. So when I, when I say that, I, I, I say it's the Bible little b, but it's still the authority on all these matters that I'm going to cover in just a minute or two. So the deadline for application is January 15th of every year. You will have already, you know, looked at the handbook by then because it'll tell you how to do case reports and the format and be sure to follow that format very carefully. Don't try to do a JAVMA format or any other kind of publication format. Stick to the ABVP format, which is detailed in that handbook. The application comes in, it'll include the case reports or the case summaries or whatever combination you have used. It will include letters of recommendation. It will include all your CE because it'll expect a little bit more CE than your state might require to get to maintain your license. And that goes in by January 15th. 
if everything is good, and then the case reports go under review, generally by May, you know, within a few months, you will hear back about those case reports or the case summaries and or combination. If everything has passed, then you will be sitting for the exam in the first Saturday in November. So let's say that you worked hard, you got your case reports in by January 15th, and then you got February, March, and let's say April to relax a little bit if you wanted to. But once you're here in May, you've got to start hitting the books and going through the reference materials. There's, there's all kinds of guidance in that handbook about things that people have used to study. And there's online courses and there's other core review courses for candidates for ABVP certification. And then come Saturday, the first Saturday in November, you sit for the exam. It is now, used to be, you would be in, do it in person, but now it's online. And it is a proctored exam, which means that you are being watched. There's a human being watching people take the exam on a screen. So there's no prospect of cheating or anything like that. And then another few months goes by. Of course, the, the exams are graded. And actually, probably within about six weeks, you will hear whether you've passed or not. So that's the process. Well, Mark, I feel like with our couple of conversations, this one included, and going through the course about ABVP credentialing on Vetfolio, I feel like I have a good handle on what's involved in becoming board certified. I have to say though, it doesn't sound any easier than it did when I started looking into it. it Cassie, if it was easy, everybody would do it and it sure. wouldn't be very special, right? And Absolutely. I have to, but I have to also say, because there are other, you know, quote, I'm putting in air quotes here. You can't, you can't see me on the, on the podcast, but yeah, there are other certifications out there and I have one in, you know, in, in pain management, for example, but it's not a board level certification. Mm -hmm. So if you're in primary care and you want to be a specialist in the species of your choice or more than one, there are people that are double, triple, and even one, one diplomate, a colleague of mine, I know that it's quadruple board certified. So fortified. Ah, oh, that's yeah. perfect. <laughs> yeah. Four different species categories. He's a specialist in Wow, it's canine feline, and then all of the three exotic species. So the small mammal reptile, amphibian, and avian, he is a board certified. In. Goodness. Mm -hmm. But so to be board certified is much different than almost any other certification is as good as those are. It just, it, it qualifies you as a specialist in that species of your choice. And frankly, modern day, opens up doors that never would have been opened up to you before. And so that's the motivation to do it to, to, for your own edification, your own self-learning. That's all good too. That's the original purpose. In addition to additional and novel career opportunities that open for ABVP diplomates, there are data to support that there's a financial return as well. That is that ABVP diplomates have a higher mean and median income than non-boarded practitioners do. And I love that you brought up this opening up doors in our careers, because I'd love to hear about how that has been true in your career. How has being board certified affected you and it, for better, I'm assuming probably not for worse, but just in general, what kind of impact has it had on your career? Well, I can tell you what it did for me, but of course that's just me. I think in the broader sense, when I talk about opening doors, when you have these letters after your name and you're, you're a specialist in that species. It's instant street cred, if you will, for almost anybody else that is looking for veterinarians to move into roles that they otherwise may not be asked to move into. So for example, and I'll tell you what it did for me, but what I, my experience is maybe not what everybody else's would be, but I can tell you there are many, many diplomates that have within practice organizations have become the medical director or the chief of staff. Others have 
in fact, started referrals, right? So there are certain cases that may not have to go to an internist, but they have a referral base in their community, right? Where some doctors don't want to manage diabetic cats that also have kidney disease or you just imagine. And so they refer to these diplomates. Others have established rotating ultrasound practices, for example, even though they're not a radiologist, they still become, you know, kind of expert in that probably do have a certification in radiology, but the ADVP, you know, says, okay, I'm a specialist in canine feline. And now I also have this uh, ultrasound certification and experience. Others have moved into industry. Others have moved into academia. So most, I think of the doctors or the veterinarians who are leading the community service rotations and teaching hospitals, you know, are probably ABVP, right? So they're kind of like a minimum requirement to become an instructor, right? You can't just necessarily be, uh, take your DVM and get those kind of positions. I mentioned industry, government, regulatory areas. So all of that, all of those doors open. For me, I started to get into pain management. I was asked to do some speaking and I became eventually an author and, and speaker in that domain, nationally and internationally, but it wouldn't have happened without the ABVP part of it to start. I do want to say one more thing, Cassie, because this is kind of important. To leverage that diplomate status most effectively, it requires more than just kind of stopping with getting that status. It also requires rubbing elbows with people, right? So we're a community of veterinarians. And when you come to, for example, the symposium, the annual meeting, and you meet other diplomates who are doing other things, amazing things, and then somebody asks you to be on a committee, like the exam committee or the credentials committee or something like that. And then eventually you work your way up and maybe you become a, have a leadership position in the organization. That's the kind of thing that really, really leverages. It's really tremendous. I just can't even begin to describe the, the energy that comes about when you have actively participated within ABVP, both attending a symposium, but also doing the committee work and maybe some leadership as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Epstein, this has been great. I feel like you've given us an excellent overview of what ABVP is, how to become board certified and, and why that's important and what kind of impacts that can have on our careers. So thank you so much for joining me today. Are there any final thoughts you want to share with us? Only this, Cassie, that I'm, I'm really honored to have spent a few minutes with you. May I share my email address right here for anybody that were to hear this and to drop Absolutely, uh, we'd love okay. that. So it's mark.epstein, E-P-S-T-E-I-N at totalbondvets.com, T-O-T-A-L-B-O-N-D-V-E-T-S.com, totalbondvets.com. Happy to entertain any further thoughts, questions, or interest in the ABVP. This is one of my favorite things about doing this job is I get to meet so many cool people in this industry. And I love just like the general theme is exactly what you did right there of like, here's how you get a hold of me. Ask me all your questions. That's amazing that you're, you're so generous with that. So thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's uh, truly my pleasure. All right. I hope everyone is feeling inspired after that talk. Dr. Epstein, thank you so much. That was great. And thank you to ABVP for sponsoring this episode. For more episodes like this, click on the education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this episode, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, one animal is better off because of you today. It's a great day.